Good evening. Please turn with me and your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. The passage to which I'd like to turn our attention this evening is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's good to be back in the pulpit and good to be back in Paul's wonderfully rich and theological letter that he wrote to a troubled church in the Greek city of Corinth. As you will recall, Corinth was a city in Greece known for its sexuality, its sensuality. It had temples to pagan gods that involved sensual rituals and temple prostitutes, all under the guise of righteous religious ceremonies. And tonight, our text, in our text, Paul transitions from addressing the Corinthians' pride in their church, pride over their church leaders, pride over their own wisdom and their own gifts, to addressing a different kind of pride, pride over the church's sin, specifically their sin of toleration, toleration of sexual sin. In every age, the church will be tempted to adopt the moral standards of the world, and we can be assured that toleration of the world's standards will eventually lead to acceptance of the world's standards, and acceptance of the world's standards will eventually lead to prideful endorsement of those standards. And that's where the Corinthian church had found themselves. But we are not without hope. God, in His Word, exposes the sin of the church, as we just prayed for, and He exposes the sins of believers. Not because He's mean, not because He wants to shame anyone, but because He is a loving Father who kindly reveals to us our sin so that we can be redirected from it and back to Him our only source of good and of joy. So let's read together Paul's words to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of our Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with confidence and yet still in need. We know that you have promised to attend the reading and the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would do that with power, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would search us by your word, that you would reveal to us remaining sin so that we may confess it, repent, and turn to you for washing, for cleansing. Lord, make us holy and make this church holy. For Christ's name, amen. Lord willing, over the course of this sermon and the next one, we will be able to cover in two parts this chapter. Tonight, we will see Paul's problem, the problem that he lays out, and his prescription. Paul's problem that he's laying out and the prescription for that problem. Let's look together at the first two verses and see the problem that Paul addresses here in this chapter. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the problem on the surface appears to be that immorality, which is 
how several translations translate the Greek word porneia, where we get pornography from. Porneia refers to any kind of sexual activity, sinful sexual activity, either adultery or fornication or any other sexual deviancy or unnatural sexual relations. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 when he says that divorce is unacceptable except on the grounds of sexual immorality or porneia. Or again in Matthew 15 where he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and sexual immorality, porneia. In the Corinthian church, a member was engaging in clear sexual sin. And Paul's language in verse 1 makes it clear that this is publicly known. It is no secret, both within and without of the church. And what exactly is the sin? Well, Paul charges the man of having his father's wife, which means his stepmother. And the language sounds strange, his father's wife, but it's the same words used in Leviticus. If you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 18... We'll see the relevant passage. Leviticus 18. It's the third book of the Torah, the law of Israel. I wouldn't ordinarily chase down this text, but I think it's important given where our culture is heading down the road of sexual deviancy, and we need to be clear. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 6. God's Word says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And this is where Paul's getting the language of one's father's wife which is a different Hebrew word for the one that's used of mother in verse 7. That's how we know that Paul's talking about a man being with his stepmother, not his birth mother. The Leviticus passage continues to list very explicitly all of the unnatural and unlawful sexual relationships that are abhorrent to God. But before we leave this passage, skip down to verse 24. 18, Leviticus 18, starting in verse 24, and we'll see what God says about the effects of these kinds of sin. Do not make for yourselves, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land has become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. The effects of these sins are that the nation and even the land is defiled and the transgressors are to be cut off from among the people. File that away. We will come back to those principles. But back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is here putting his finger on a sinner in a particularly unnatural, incestuous relationship. We don't know what happened to the man's father. Did he, did he die? Did he divorce the woman? We don't know the specifics. In the end, it doesn't really matter. The incestuous relationship is unnatural and sinful. So unnatural that Paul points out that the pagans wouldn't even tolerate it. The Roman orator Cicero spoke of a similarly incestuous relationship using words of unbelievable, 
unheard of, except in this one case that he was referencing. God's people were aware of a particularly egregious and unnatural kind of sin, so egregious that even the pagans wouldn't put up with it. And what were they doing about it? Nothing. In fact, Paul is here exposing that the problem was bigger than just the man's sin. The problem was that the Corinthian church, had ex- the sin had expanded to a church-wide level. They were proud. They were arrogant. That's what verse 2 reveals to their shame. And you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Rather than being grieved, they were boasting. The same sins that Paul had blasted in the first few chapters of this book of pride and boasting and arrogance, those same sins have reared their heads again, but this time not in relation to their leadership or their maturity or their gifting, but in relation to their toleration. They were tolerant of terrible sexual sin, and they were proud of it. Proud of how accepting they were. Proud of how tolerant. Proud of how not judgmental they were as a congregation. My goodness, it sounds like he's writing to a 21st century church. Paul doesn't tell us the specifics of their toleration. Was the church distracted by more pressing issues in the church, like leadership and doctrine, and therefore unable to get to this issue, and it was just lingering? I don't think that was the case. Were they convinced that this incestuous relationship was prudent for financial reasons? Like the man's father dies, and in order to keep the inheritance in the family, the stepmother remarries, and uh, and the money would have gone with another family. No, he just married her so that the money stays in the family. We don't know. But what is more likely is that the church had pridefully confused their minds into thinking that tolerating sin is loving to a sinner. That's what the world wants us to think. That's what our flesh wants us to think. That's what Satan wants us to think. That to love the sinner well means tolerating their sin. But as we see in this text, and as we've seen throughout church history, as we've seen in churches in just the last ten years, when you capitulate to tolerating sin, you will sooner or later drift into arrogantly celebrating it. It's no surprise that we have congregations in this nation who celebrated Pride Month last month. Very Corinthian of them. The Corinthians were proud. Proud of their toleration, arrogant of their own brand of worldly wisdom, when instead Paul tells them that they should have been grieved. They should have been mourning. Grieved that Satan had got a foothold in someone's life. Grief over the evil one's victory in this case. Grief that a fellow member has been brought down low to a position of disgrace. Grieve that a brother has been overwhelmed by sin. Grieve that God and his gospel are being defamed even among the pagans. Grieve that the little ones among the body might be led astray by such a terrible example. Grieve that the purity of Christ's bride has been defiled. When a church doesn't mourn over its sin, especially sin in its own ranks, it's dangling over the cliff of destruction. And why, why do I say that? Those are strong words. It's because the Bible makes clear that God takes very clearly, very seriously, the purity of His people. That's why I pointed to the passage at the end of Leviticus 18. The people of God in the nation, the nation as a whole, were defiled. They were made unclean by the presence of tolerated sin. And the appropriate action that God prescribes is to remove the transgressor lest the whole nation be defiled. God takes the purity of His church very seriously. Our Heavenly Father cares for us and cares for our purity. And why wouldn't He? 
Earthly fathers feel the same way about our children, about our children's welfare. Wouldn't our Heavenly Father do the same? If your child was infected with a terrible disease, wouldn't you do what was necessary to quarantine the infection and cut off whatever is necessary in order to save the life of the child? Listen for a moment as I read from a passage in the Old Testament. Lamentations chapter 2 speaks about a similar situation where sin is not handled properly. It's left to persist among God's people. And it mentions a major problem that results. The false prophets fail to expose sin, and God's name is defamed among the nation. Lamentations 2, starting in verse 14. God says, Your prophets have seen for you false visions and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity, but you have seen for your oracles that they are false and misleading. And what is the result? The next verse. All who pass by along the way, they clap their hands at you. They hiss, they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? The false prophets failed to expose the sin in the midst of Jerusalem. And the result is that all those who pass by defamed the name of God, defamed the city of God, and mocked God's people because of it. God cares about the purity of His people for His own sake and for the sake of His name. But he doesn't just do that in the Old Testament. You can turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. It contains the words of Christ himself to the various churches in the region. Revelation 2. Looking at the words to the church in Thyatira. Starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. There's that word again. And to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto her sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each according to your works. Terrifying words. The church at Thyatira was tolerating sexual immorality and refusing to repent of it. They failed to acknowledge the sin in their midst and they were pridefully tolerating that temptress, Lady Jezebel. And Christ was promising terrible punishment unless they repented. God cares about the purity of His church. Christians must not tolerate sin in the church of God any more than we would in our own lives. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We're instead called to strive for verse 3 of Ephesians 5. It says, But sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Purity is what we're called to as a church. Are we a church that strives that is straining for purity, that is marked by purity, that is known for its purity? 
Or are we a church that can let our arrogance blind us, just like the Corinthians? Are we a church that can pridefully tolerate sin of any kind? We need to constantly check ourselves on this. But perhaps the most pertinent question for each of us is not, am I tolerating someone else's impurity? Am I tolerating impurity in myself? Am I someone marked by purity? Or has sexual temptation gotten the better of me? Am I keeping a safe distance from anything remotely tempting or distracting? Or has Lady Jezebel whispered into my ear and seduced me down her path? Brothers and sisters, we should keep in front of us the words of Christ to the church in Thyatira and be warned that God will discipline those whom He loves. He's a loving and faithful father, and he will not let his children continue to run headlong down the path of sin towards their own destruction. If you see within you a toleration of sexual sin, a a toying of that which is clearly condemned in God's word, then I urge you to hear that God's word calls you to repent, to turn, that you are guilty, you are defiled by it. But I also want you to hear tonight that God's word offers more than just condemnation. God's word also offers hope to the guilty and hope for the defiled. God's word makes clear to us that there is another one who has come and he has remained perfectly pure. He has come and avoided any defilement by remaining perfectly chaste. And the one who has come is Jesus Christ. Christ is perfectly pure and holy, so holy that he can take away your defilement and your impurity just as he touched the leprous man and made him instantly clean. And even more than that, He can take away not only your defilement and your, your impurity, but also your guilt. Every time you indulged in sexual sin, it compounded the sentence of guilty that hung over your head. But when you come to Christ by faith, your guilty sentence is removed. You go from being branded a transgressor and sentenced to death to being marked out as holy and adopted into God's own family. Forgiveness and cleansing come to all who come to Christ in faith and believe that He is the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Won't you come to Christ and believe? Come to Him and be cleansed and be forgiven and you too can experience the fullness of joy that God intends for all of His people to experience individually and corporately as a body. And for us believers, as we continue to reflect upon Christ's love for us, Think often about how you've been cleansed by His blood. You've been forgiven because He died in your place. And let that stir your heart with love towards Him. And stir you to fight even harder against the temptations of sexual sin which are all around us. Let our love towards Christ produce within us steadfast resolve to cut off sin at the first hint of it. And to lay aside the weight of sexual immorality that clings so closely. You see, God intends for people to see our good works, which includes our purity, and to glorify our Father in heaven because of that. May we ever be growing in that area as we seek to have purity both as individuals and as a body. Next, we've seen the first point, which was the problem of pridefully tolerating sexual sin. Now let's look at the second point, which is Paul's prescription. Paul's prescription for the problem. The church had terrible sin in its midst. But instead of being grieved by it, the Corinthians were not sorrowful. They were instead proud. 
And the absence of godly grief led to the absence of action. Something had to happen. No faithful parent would allow a terrible disease to run rampant through their child without seeking to isolate the infection. And that's why God, through Paul, tells the Corinthian church to carve out the infection. We see it at the end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Similar to what we read in Leviticus, the whole body stands to be defiled if the impure element were to remain. And so, to prevent a systemic infection, the gangrenous element must be removed. Paul then moves into some language which has been quite perplexing for commentators. He says in verse 3, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I won't wade into all the technical debates on this verse. I'll just summarize with what I think Paul is saying. When this letter was to be read publicly to the Corinthian church, which was standard practice, the Spirit would speak through his inspired apostolic instruction just as if he were present with them in person. And what was that instruction? Specifically, verse 4 and 5. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my Spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul here is using some interesting language to describe the goal and the effects of excommunication, or removing someone from membership, a professing believer who remains hardened in unrepentant sin. Paul says that the church is to deliver this man to Satan, so that his flesh might be destroyed. Let's break that down a little bit. To deliver a man to Satan is language that illustrates the spiritual dimensions of what is happening when you remove someone from membership. You're removing them from the spiritual protection and benefits that are afforded to them by being a member of a spiritual community. You are barred from those spiritual benefits of the Lord's Supper, of prayer, and of fellowship, communion. And rather than enjoying these spiritual benefits, you're instead transferred to the world, to the domain of darkness, over which Satan and his principalities and powers hold sway. It's as if you're being dropped behind enemy lines, inside enemy-occupied territory, and you're there with no backup, no weapons, no self-defense, no fellow troops. And that's the reality, the terrifying reality of being handed over to Satan. And then Paul says the intended effect of being handed over to Satan is the destruction of the flesh. And some have argued that Paul is urging a physical destruction of the flesh, similar to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. I don't think that's the case for several reasons, one of which is that Paul, if Paul was intending a physical death for this man, he wouldn't need to mention in verse 11 the need for them to not associate with the one who retains the name of brother. If he was dead, it wouldn't matter. Rather, when Paul says the destruction of his flesh, I think he's using typical Pauline language to describe the sinful aspects of our person. Paul often uses those language of flesh and spirit to describe our nature from two different angles. Spirit means the whole person as oriented towards God. Flesh means the whole person oriented away from God. And the destruction of one's sinful nature would thus belong in the same category of imagery as crucifying the flesh, language he uses in Galatians 5, for example. 
This is similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. He says, He sent out Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, Paul says. And so what does all this mean? I think Paul is urging the Corinthian believers to immediately remove from their fellowship a man engaging in egregious public sexual sin for the good of the congregation and the good of the individual. And that last bit is important. The purpose of discipline is for the good of the individual as well as the good of the congregation. For the congregation, sin must be removed before it spreads. And for the individual, discipline is for their good as well. We want them to know the enormity of their sin. We want them to know the terrible fate that will result if they continue down that path. And toleration of the sin may hurry them down the road to hell. But discipline might be God's means of saving that deceived man or woman for heaven. I see Paul's language here about the destruction of the flesh similar to the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son had spent all of his money, he had lost all of his so-called friends, and he had nothing to eat but the slop in the pigsty, then God revealed to him his true poverty and the enormity of his foolishness. And that compelled him to run back to his father. That's, the, that's what we hope will happen when we have to excommunicate someone. We hope that turning them over to Satan will be used by God for their good. That they will see that they've traded the glorious spiritual robes for fleshly rags. That they've traded a seat at the Lord's table for a bucket of slop in the world's pigsty. And that they've, they would have been better as a mere servant in God's house than being a ruler over all the world. And we prayerfully plead with God that he would use the destruction of their flesh to bring the sinner to the end of themselves so that they would repent and be restored. That's the goal of all of this, restoration. We want them to see the weight of their sin and turn back from destruction. We want them to repent and turn from their immorality. We want them to reject impurity and return again to the only one who can purify them. We want them to, as Paul says, have their spirits saved on the day of the Lord, which is the final day of judgment. Now let me close tonight with a few observations from this text. A few observations from which I believe you may draw some application. Observation number one, it's worth noting that Paul's command for immediate excommunication of this man bypasses the normal private steps of discipline found in Matthew 18. It isn't a contradiction or an inconsistency in the discipline process. Rather, it's a clear acknowledgement of both Paul's apostolic authority and an acknowledgement that there may be some situations of egregious public sin in such a degree that immediate action might be required in order to protect the name of Christ and the purity, the public purity of the church of God. Thankfully, such cases are rare in Scripture and rare in church life. But we need to have a category for such discipline cases. Observation number two. Private sin has corporate impact. Private sin has corporate impact. We need to remember that even the sins that one may commit in the privacy of their own bedroom can have an impact and will have an impact upon the purity of the bride of Christ. And I say that because it makes sense as I discussed in my my last sermon, because we are members of one another. And if part of the body is defiled, the rest of the body will be impacted. 
It may not be immediate, but it will happen. And so let, us, let, let that drive us to Christ, to be quick to confess to Him our private sins and to repent and to strive for purity, especially purity in our private lives for the sake of the brothers and sisters that we love among us, among other things. Observation number three. It struck me that this passage reveals that it's a genuine privilege to be a part of the church's corporate life in the Spirit. It's a genuine privilege to be a part of a church's corporate life in the Spirit. Churches and church members today tend to have such a low view of church membership that if we were cut off from a church, it really wouldn't be that big a deal. You just pack it up, we'll just move on, maybe we'll join another church, maybe not. We'll go to the one down the road, go to the one across the street. We could take it or leave it. But this passage reveals just how anemic that view of church life really is. It should be spiritually tragic, indeed spiritually traumatic, to be cut off from the people of God because of our sin. Paul's language of being removed from God's people, of being cut off, of having our flesh destroyed by Satan, all of that should awaken us to the tremendous privilege it is to be a part of the spiritual life of a local body of Christ. We have access to God's means of grace, like preaching and fellowship and prayer and the Lord's Supper. We have the protection afforded by having spiritual shepherds and leaders over us, of having brothers and sisters who pray for us and our safety, pray for our spiritual flourishing. Do we regularly thank God because He's made us to be a part of a local expression of His body? Are you thankful to be a member of the church of God, of a local church? Not merely a part of the universal church, but a particular local church. Are you thankful to be a member and not left alone in the world single-handedly fighting against Satan? We should be thankful for the privilege of being a part of a church and its corporate life in the Spirit. It's a very Pauline emphasis. If you have not yet come to Christ, then know that you do not have access to these privileges. You may sit in a pew regularly, but you are not partaking of the privileges and the protections and the graces that are afforded to you by faith in Christ. Come to Christ tonight by faith, and you too can have access to these privileges. And if you have come to Christ, then cherish these privileges, including the one that we're about to taste together. We have the privilege of partaking in the Lord's Supper together tonight, which is spiritual communion with Christ by faith and spiritual nourishment for us as we journey together as a body led by the Holy Spirit. If you're like the saints that we see in Acts chapter 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, then we invite you to join us at the Lord's table tonight. If you have not yet come to Christ, or if you have been put out of fellowship by another local body, then let these plates pass and be first reconciled to Christ and His church, and then you may join us at His table. Let's pray, and then we can dine together. Father, we thank you that you care about your church's purity. You care enough that you would send your own son to die for it. That we might be made holy because of Christ's perfect sacrifice in our place. Father, please take this table, this picture of that sacrifice, and impress it into our souls. Help us to see the enormity of the sacrifice in our place so that it would... Repel us from any sexual sin. Make us to be a holy people. We ask this in Christ's name.
Amen. Table servants, please come.